Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1 or page 785 in the Bibles provided for you, 785. We start a new series this morning. We're going through these minor prophets, but today we start a new book, the book of Habakkuk, as Peggy Stevens has already announced. And uh, this book comes after this prophet or this prophecy. It was coming sometime after the, the prophecy of Nahum that we've already studied. And uh, in the early part of the, uh, or the late part of the 7th century, 600 and some years before Christ, and he had a very long ministry till about uh, 575, long enough to see a lot of things, uh, several things that he would have been very happy about and several things that he would have been profoundly unhappy about, which is what we have in this conversation. These three chapters are conversation, a heated one at times, between God and Habakkuk. We've seen prophets address God like this in the past, but this whole book is a personal conversation between Habakkuk and his God. You've seen a couple of things that would have made him very happy. You know, Nahum predicted, he prophesied that, that Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, would be brought down that it would be conquered, even as proud as it was. And it was. It was brought down. The capital of Assyria was toppled by the Babylonians. And then he also saw that the wicked king Manasseh, who offered his own children as sacrifices, the wicked king Manasseh was succeeded by the godliest of kings, Josiah, who brought great revival and great reforms to Judah. Things were things were looking up. A great international foe was brought down. And uh, Josiah, great political and spiritual leader, brought up to lead Judah. But then things grew dark again. Josiah was killed, died an untimely death. And he was succeeded by wicked and cowardly kings like Jehoahaz. And then the unthinkable while, while Habakkuk was preaching that his people needed to turn from their idolatry, that they were stiff-necked, that they were rebellious, they were materialistic, they were selfish, while he was preaching that they needed to return to the true Lord, and then he was complaining about the, the, the injustices that surrounded their country, God said, Habakkuk, I'm going to hear you. That that nation that you've been cheerleading that took down Nineveh, took down Assyria, Babylon, I've got good news. They're going to come and discipline your people. They're going to teach them a few things. Habakkuk is incensed, and he takes it out on God. And the Holy Spirit caused those words of anger and disappointment and doubt to be written down that you and I might have them to pray when we need them. Let's pick up the conversation with Habakkuk and God in chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read through chapter 2, the first several verses, but we'll only focus on studying verses 1 to 11 today. The oracle 
that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. God answers, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, but, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For that by them, he lives in luxury and his rich food. Uh, his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Oh, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Thank you for being a good father who encourages us, who delights in our prayers, even if they're doubtful. Because in coming to you, only in coming to you and seeing Jesus, can our faith be restored and steadied for the present and the future. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself today in this Old Testament book. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> Alexander Dumas wrote The Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, the central figure of The Count of Monte Cristo is Edmund Dantes. There's a central image 
in that book, the one that starts the whole rest of the book, really, a formative image. It's of Edmund being taken prisoner and uh, taken up to the, 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 the ominous Chateau d'If, that uh, horrific prison on top of a mountainous peak overlooking the ocean. And there he meets the wicked Dorliac, the evil warden, who is eager to make an example of Edmund Dantes. He takes him to his cell. And uh, at least in the movie version, the camera zooms in on something scrawled, a phrase scrawled into the cell by the previous prisoner. God will give me justice. Well, the warden looks at it and he says, uh, uh, people are always trying to, trying to motivate themselves in my prison. Sometimes they have calendars. They mark the days on the wall. But soon, he says, they give up hope. They quit keeping the calendar. They die. And all I'm left with is this unsightly wall. So as he's stroking his whip and, he, and his henchmen begin to crank uh, Edmund up to the ceiling and his feet dangling, he said, I found a way to help my prisoners keep time. I beat them on the anniversary every year of their imprisonment. And today I'm going to give you something doubly special. And, and at this point, he said, you're thinking, where is God? Will God come and help me? And well, I have news for you. He doesn't hear you. He doesn't do anything. In fact, he's, he's never around France this time of year. And Mandante's in, in, in defiance says, oh, yes, God is everything. And God sees everything that you're doing. And Dorliac says, well, then let's make a deal. I'll start beating you, and you cry out to God. And the moment he shows up, I'll stop. Some of you feel that way today, right now. You're not being physically beaten like that, but you're thinking, like Edmund, this would be a great time for God to show up. If God were to show up in this cell and cut me down and take this man down to where he belongs, he would make a great name for himself. And you're saying the same thing, and maybe you've been saying it for years, and you're saying, where is he? Life has been beating me up for years, perhaps. Or what about our city? Where is God? Why doesn't he show up in our city? We're especially thinking about it this weekend and what we've experienced in the past year. We cry out to God, where is he? Or we cry out to him for our country or we cry out to him for the injustices of our world. Does he not show up in this part of the cosmos either? Habakkuk saying the same thing. Now, I can't stand to leave people in suspense, so I have to tell you that Edmund gets out of prison. He escapes, 
And because of the information he learned in the prison, he, he, makes, he, he finds a whole lot of money and he uses all of that money to bring revenge on all of his enemies. And uh, if you think that's a spoiler, it's a really long book. You can thank me later. I've given you a head start. But it's a picture. It's a, it's a picture of what Jesus has come to do. That just as Edmund began to unwind the evil of that regime by coming, becoming a victim to it himself, so Jesus Christ is unwinding the evils of this world by having first become a victim to it himself but rising in victory over it and reigning from the right hand of the Father, he promises to bring every enemy under his feet. In the meantime, we have freedom from a heavenly Father to cry out to him with our doubts and even our anger and our disappointments, just as Habakkuk shows us. The Count of Monte Cristo ends with this line. All human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. That could summarize the book of Habakkuk. What is the positive antidote to the doubt that Habakkuk or any other believer is experiencing? It's waiting and hoping in Christ. What happens when we judge God without waiting for him. When we judge God through our, our, through our disillusionment, our glasses of disillusionment, if we're looking at what, what our disappointments and looking at God through those disappointments, we misjudge him. And the antidote to that is waiting. Well, look how it unfolds in verses one through four. This is what happens when we misjudge God. Instead of waiting for him to bring his kingdom, bring his righteousness, to bring together the good things that he ultimately is working toward, even through evil things, when we fail to wait on him, this is what happens to us. We become angry. Verse 2, the first part, O Lord, how long shall I cry to help for you, to, uh, to you for help? And you will not hear me. We become angry. We become angry because we have defined what good is outside of what God defines it to be. We have defined what good is going to be. So when we're disappointed in a political campaign, when we're disappointed in a church that we're in, we're disappointed in a friendship, we're disappointed in a parent, we're disappointed when the bad guys aren't caught and punished just when we think they ought to be, when we're disappointed that uh, we haven't been physically healed like we think we ought to be. When life becomes bad for us, we think God is bad. And it's all because we have our own definition of good. And if God doesn't meet our definition of good and our timing, then we get angry at him. 
Then when we get angry with him, we withdraw from him. See it in, in verse 2, the second part? I cry to you, violence, and you're not there to save. God seems distant from him, and Habakkuk is distancing himself from God. What happens when we get angry with God? Most of us don't have the nerve, the courage to take it out directly on God. So we take it out on somebody close by. We kick the dog. Or, more tragically, we take it out on our kids. Or we take it out on our parents. Or we take it out on a youth leader or a campus leader or a pastor because they represent God. We can even take it out on ourselves. That's the third negative thing that can happen. We get angry, we distance ourselves from God, and then life itself becomes unlivable. In verses three and four, Habakkuk says, what's the use? You, you sit by idly. Destruction and violence are all around. You've turned the world on its head. The law is paralyzed. Life is not worth living anymore. Who we become when we lose that kind of hope, when our definition of good has not been met in a timely way, we can lose hope. And when we lose hope and get angry and distance ourselves from God, we can become destructive, destructive to other people, destructive in crime, destructive in relationships, vindictive with whatever power we might have. We may even try to deconstruct our faith, saying, I'm just going to do away with it. We could even become so hopeless that we begin harming ourselves, cutting ourselves, or take our lives. All because we're misjudging God by looking and judging him through the lenses of our disillusionment. Well, what does it look like to wait for God? To wait for God looks like this. It does look like what Habakkuk is doing. Habakkuk doesn't talk to anybody else about his complaint with God. He goes directly to him. In fact, he barely introduces the book. An oracle of Habakkuk the prophet saw, Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help? He takes it directly to him. I am angry, disappointed with you. And God doesn't kill him. God doesn't even rebuke him. He brings him in. There's a famous commentator named Octemeyer who said, God is the friend of the honest doubter who dares to talk to God rather than about him. Isn't that what you want from your children? When your children are angry with you, you may not like what you hear, but you don't want them running down the aisle to the other person in the grocery store making their complaint. You don't want them going to the next door neighbor. 
You'd rather they not even go to the therapist first. At first they come to you and say, this is why I'm angry. As painful as the conversation can be, you want to draw them to your knee. Only then can you hear them. Can you understand? Can you repent? Or can you untangle their confusion? Only then can you put your arms around them and embrace them. God wants exactly the same. So Habakkuk goes directly to God. And the second thing, when you're waiting, this is the way you wait. You pour out your heart while you're waiting, but you also prepare yourself to listen to God's answer, which will sometimes correct your perspective. It will correct your definition of good. It may not be immediately, but when you're waiting on him, with the confidence that he is always good, you will conclude that no matter what stinks in the present time, what is so disappointing right now, he is ultimately causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can wait for that. It's exactly what God promises in chapter 2, verse 3. Still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Another commentator says that faith and fact are not always compatible in the world of sense and sight. But that is not the whole world. There is a world of justice that only God fully comprehends. His people must accept by faith what they cannot confirm in fact. One occasion I I was doing a wedding in St. Louis and it was a tense time because neither the bride or groom were Christians and the, the families didn't like each other either. Other than that, it was a grand old time for a wedding rehearsal uh, was, uh, we finally made it through the rehearsal. And as I do in every rehearsal, I shared the gospel at the beginning. I said, a a marriage, a wedding is is a, a divine drama of what Christ has come to do with the church. He comes to pursue us, to lay his life down for us, to take our sins on himself that he might be reconciled with us and live in union with us forever. I shared all of that. And I said, if you don't know uh, that, I'd love to talk, to, uh, you know, I have a personal relationship with Christ, I'd love to talk to you after the wedding. One man hung around, uh, uh, another relative, and he came up and he said, I, inv- I appreciate the, 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 the positive view you gave of God there at the beginning. And I appreciate the invitation to talk to you about it. I appreciate the invitation to talk to God about a relationship with him, but believe me, he doesn't want to hear from me. Because I don't like him. I don't like what he's done to me. I don't like the cards he's dealt to me. And if he is there, and if I ever had a chance to talk to him, I would tell him what I think. And he didn't want to hear it. I said, do you believe, can you believe that there are other people in the, there are people in the Bible who 
thought the same as you, and they said what they felt toward God, their anger, their disappointment, and God, by his Holy Spirit, caused it to be written down in Scripture so you could read it and even imitate it as a means to drawing close to the Lord. No, I'm not sure that's true, he said. Well, let's sit down. I said, here's a pew Bible. Let me just show you a few verses. Let's look at Psalm 44. The Psalms, you know, we quote the Psalms, we quote Psalm 23. We think it's all lovey-dovey, but here's one, Psalm 44. This psalmist is really angry. He says, you have rejected us. We are like sheep being led to the slaughter by you. You've turned your back on us. Wow, he said, that's pretty stiff. I said, let's look at this one, Lamentations chapter 3. You've made us a laughing stock. You've, you, you've, you've given me gravel in my mouth, gravel to my teeth. You've rejected us. And then here's my favorite. I said, look at this little book, Habakkuk. Here he says, why do you make me see, see iniquity? And why do you sit idly by and look at wrong? He said, I can't believe that. I said, it's all here. God has caused these things to be written down because he wants us to bring our complaints to him because he has provided the ultimate solution to the evil, the disappointment that we face. It's through Christ and Christ alone who suffered every evil that we can suffer in order from the inside out he might undo it and conquer it. Well, he didn't become a Christian right there on the spot, but he did take the Bible God offers the same to you. What are you harboring? What, are you, what wound are you nursing? What, what, is the, what is the anger, the disappointment that you have because God has disappointed you? I want you to hear that he wants you to come to him with it. Don't hear from this as you, as you won't hear from God speaking to Habakkuk. You won't hear a defensive God, a God with a weak ego who says, I cannot believe that after all I've done for you, you could say such a thing as that. But rather come here. Beat on my chest with all your doubts and your anger. This is what I came to relieve. And while you're there waiting however much in harumph as Habakkuk was. Don't forget to hope. To put your hope in that person, Jesus Christ, rather than in the persons or the systems that are disappointing and oppressing and wounding you. Because just like we misjudge God when we, we put on the, the prism glasses of disillusionment, when we put on the prism glasses of toxic people or dysfunctional family systems or, or, or structures or uh, human beings and their, and their institutions perhaps that, that profoundly disappoint us, we can misjudge God. But when we look at Christ, we never will lose hope. Now, here's what happens to, to, uh, to uh, 
uh, Habakkuk when he's judging God by looking at these Babylonians. He's, he's misconstrued that because God is using these Babylonians that he has somehow gone to their side. God hasn't sided with the Babylonians. He's going to bring them down too. He's utilizing them to discipline his people because he loves his people too much to allow them to continue on in the way they're going. He loves his people enough to let his people hate him for a while. But all Habakkuk can see is you switch sides. And so he accuses God. We can accuse God of apathy. You just don't care. It's exactly the thing we saw, see, isn't it? When uh, in that interchange with Mary and Martha in the New Testament. Remember G uh, Jesus was going to visit his friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He drops in on them. And Martha uh, is whirling around the house, picking up the clothes, the, uh, the, the socks and the underwear left everywhere all over the house. And she's trying to put together a meal and she's trying to sweep up the dust. And, uh, and there, what is Mary doing? She's just sitting there listening to Jesus, wasting her time listening to Jesus. And Martha finally has enough of it, and she goes to Jesus and she said, you don't care that I'm doing all of this for you, and you leave Mary here just to listen. Jesus didn't care. Jesus said, Martha, why are you so anxious and worried about these temporary things? There's only one thing needful, that is to see. That is to see, I'm the king. I'm the savior. And I'm going to cause, effectively, I'm going to cause all of history to come to the point that I am working it toward. I am the king who's going to bring all of my enemies under my feet. It would do you good, Martha, to let the supper boil over a little more often and put your hope in me. He's never apathetic. He never doesn't care. The second thing we can do is in verses 12 to 13, we can doubt his his attributes this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but you notice uh, Habakkuk's systematic theology is pristine. You're everlasting, you're holy, you're sovereign, you're immutable, you're pure. And yet, oh Lord, you've turned your back on all of those things. Because we think at times those attributes are entirely for keeping us comfortable or doing what we want when we want it. Instead of accepting that King Jesus is sovereign and in such total control that he is able to bring, to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Ultimately revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. The, 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 most two, the, the two most incompatible facts of history. How can these two facts hold together that God is a caring and loving and gracious God and yet he forsook his son on the cross and allowed him to suffer hell? How can those two things fit together this way? 
that God was working a greater good by giving his own son that he might provide a way for us to escape the hopelessness of this world and the pains of hell and to live with him forever by making his son a sacrifice in our place. My wife was an occupational therapist in in St. Louis and is an occupational therapist. When she was practicing in St. Louis, she worked in a, a burn unit, which is a, a, a painful, a, an unspeakably painful place to be treated for burns. The, 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 the pain of the wound itself is indescribable. And then the treatment of the wound is unspeakable. Often the patients hate the doctors, hate those who are, are trying to help them because they, they just can't process that what is being done to them is for healing and they would rather die than to live. There was one doctor she worked with who was exceptionally skilled. And if on occasion the, the, the patient could see past their pain and look at his hands they could see that he himself had been a victim of burning. He was a survivor. He had the scar tissue to prove it. Those hands that had been wounded so severely became exceptionally skilled in leading those hopeless patients to healing themselves. Whatever you're experiencing individually, whatever we're experiencing as a city. And we're tempted to think God has abandoned us. He's not listening to us. There may be a million reasons for why you're going through what you're going through. Maybe a million reasons we're going through what we are in Memphis, but one of them cannot be that God doesn't love us. Because he proves his love for us, the Bible says. That while we were even his enemies, Christ died for us. When you doubt him, even while you're pounding on his chest with your doubts and your anger, look by faith to those hands holding you. They're scarred. His feet are scarred. His head and side are scarred. And someday you will put your hands in those very wounds. And it will convince you that whatever you've experienced in this world, whatever you've lost, whatever disappointments you've you've endured, he personally is the only faithful, accurate definition of good. And it'll all be in perspective. And all your enemies and all his will be under his feet. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, please help us. We do believe. Help our unbelief. For that one who is here or who is connected by some other means and has never believed on Jesus Christ's
personally for Lord and Savior. May this be the first day of their, their faith. For the rest of us, Lord, help us. Help us to wait. Help us to hope, put our hope in the person of Jesus Christ and get a name for yourself in the process. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.